Well, I want you to imagine for a few moments that you're enjoying a sunny afternoon, like yesterday afternoon, about 20 degrees. You decide to go for a walk and you're walking down just a quiet suburban street on the footpath, enjoying the sunny afternoon, just enjoying a few moments to be by yourself on a nice walk. And as you walk past a particular house, suddenly a dog barks very loudly right beside you. But sneakily, we've got a slow-mo camera on you, high definition, zooming in and watching everything that's going to take place right there when the dog barks. And we see a number of things happen. First of all, you're startled. And the reason that that happens is that the noise of the dog bark comes into your ear, goes to a reflex part of your brain that recognises it as a potential danger signal and immediately sends a little message down to some glands that pump out lots of adrenaline. And within a heartbeat or so, you've got adrenaline flowing through your system. Very powerful hormone. And it does a bunch of things to you. One of the things we can see on our slow-mo camera is that your pupils dilate. Wow, that's so that you can see danger coming at you from a wider angle. Might be a bit blurry, but at least you can duck out of the way. Something else happens, your heart starts to race. And this is to pump oxygen around your body to get your muscles ready in case they need lots of oxygen to work hard to either run like crazy to escape from the dog or fight the dog off or maybe just freeze and hope the dog's barking at somebody else. We call that a fight, flight or freeze response. Your breathing increases to help oxygenate that blood so that the oxygen can get there. Your muscles get tense, ready for action. You start to sweat a little bit to help keep you cool in case you've got to run a distance. And the hair stands up on the back of your neck and on your arms, and I've got no clue why that happens. <laughs> but our slow-mo camera captures some other things in just a moment. Within a step or two, the thinking part of your brain kicks in. And its immediate response is not, ooh, dog. Its immediate response is, wow, I'm on full alert. The body's on full alert. There must be a serious danger somewhere. I've got to search this danger out, analyse it and figure out what to do. So the thinking part of your brain kicks in a little bit behind the reflex and it says, okay, medium-sized dog, I can tell from the bark. High fence. Yes, the gate is locked. Looks like we're good. Okay, sends a signal back to the reflex part of the brain and says, you can turn down, relax, stand down, everything's cool. And our slow-mo captures, within a step or two, your body go from here to <laughs> like that, completely relaxed as the adrenaline system turns off really quickly. Then something interesting happens. You walk along another couple of steps, and then you look around to see if anybody was watching you when you were completely out of control just a few moments ago. Fortunately, nobody was. So you chuckle to yourself, <laughs> that was a bit funny, and you walk on. And within about 50 metres, you've forgotten all about it. Now, let me get you to imagine another scenario. It's been a pretty stressful time at work. For the last couple of months, the boss has really been giving you a hard time. And it's been long hours, you haven't been sleeping all that well. Well, finally, Saturday evening comes and you're sitting quietly in your lounge room watching your favourite TV show, nice and relaxed and everything's at peace. Then all of a sudden, 
for no reason, this whole thing happens again. The adrenaline turns on. And your pupils dilate, your muscles get tense, you start to breathe fast, your heart starts to race, you start to sweat, and your thinking part of your brain kicks in and says, what's going on? I'm on high alert. There must be an immediate danger somewhere. And it starts to search for the danger. But guess what? You're sitting in your lounge room watching your TV, there's no danger. Sees a spider right over in the corner of the room there. Maybe that's the cause of the problem. Very creative, the thinking part of our brain. Now it's about four metres away and I could squish it with my boot, that can't be the explanation. Um, oh, my heart's racing, maybe I'm having a heart attack, that's probably it, I'll ring the ambulance. When a patient who has what I just described, which is called a panic attack, comes to the doctor, something quite interesting occurs when the doctor asks a bunch of questions to try to understand what's going on. happens is that the person expresses quite often sort of a deep sense of shame that they were so completely out of control in that particular moment. You see, the earlier example I gave you, they're a little bit embarrassed and the feeling of being out of control only lasted a few seconds and they kind of shrugged it off. After all, the dog was to blame. Pretty obvious, really. But if you're sitting in your lounge room minding your own business, and this happens, it's kind of more than embarrassing. It's a little bit awkward, isn't it? Maybe you're losing the plot or something like that. And people come along feeling a little bit different to embarrassed, a little bit deeper kind of feeling, maybe a little bit ashamed about their inability to control their own body in those particular circumstances. If you want to talk to me a bit more about panic attacks later, I'm happy to. Having said all of those things, I'd like to ask Dorothy to come up. Dorothy's going to share with us a little testimony, a little story, and then following on from that, some things that have happened um, since then that have led to a vision for the future. And I want to be clear that um, Dorothy's story's got nothing to do with panic attacks and anxiety, but she's going to... Experiencing an adrenaline rush right now. But she's going to uh, share a story that um, helps illustrate some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Um, I just want to give the context. Uh, I was a senior leader in a school before my children were born. And so I really felt comfortable that I understood how to manage behaviour. I was um, really well prepared with a good set of skills for parenting. And then... I had my child <laughs> um, and we experienced really difficult behaviour and that led to me feeling quite humiliated. I had um, built a reputation mm. for being able to control children and my own son was in many situations quite uncontrollable. I felt really vulnerable and very exposed because he did not care where we were. He had no sense of occasion. Um, and my children both attended the school that I led in. And I had many, many moments where I was totally shamed by the behaviour that we saw. We did do assessments earlier on 
and we didn't get any definitive answers about what was going on. So you just have to ask yourself, why? Why is it that I can't have the family that I imagined I was able, and my husband also is an educator, that we felt we should be able to have? Finally, in high school, we went back to a psychologist and we achieved a diagnosis. It was both devastating and releasing because we had answers for our questions of why. Why do we look like this? Having experienced the journey of parenting a child with a neurological disorder, I know the inadequacies of the current system and I know how it feels and how you are judged based on your children's behaviour. And it is difficult when they're not in control and neither are you. So, this leads us to what, what is the issue? We understand right now that the issues of um, the rates of children presenting with neurological disorders is increasing and that includes anxiety, depression and autism spectrum disorder. Some of it is because we're much better at recognising. Those families exist in a context that actively disempowers the parents. They have less support. Their children don't go for plays. They don't get sleepovers. No family wants to have them over because it's too difficult. So, the vision that we have here at Door of Hope is creating an environment where families are supported to thrive and raise children with hope for the future. How can we do that? To build a centre of excellence that delivers a wraparound service for neurological development that supports families to improve outcomes from for their children birth to 16 years. Fantastic. It's a grand vision and right now we're working um, with great organisations like St Giles and Headspace, um, Autism TAS and we're having conversations about what it could look like and they're very excited about those early conversations. And I just want to include the Door of Hope community in that conversation as well and say um, we're going to be having a launch event, a fundraiser. Um, it's a premiere of a movie that hasn't been seen here and you'll start to see some advertising rolling out and I just wanted you to understand when we talk about the family care centre what the heart is behind that and um, what God is doing is amazing. Thank you Dorothy we're going to be seeing more about the family care centre emerge over the coming months the next couple of years and just encourage Dorothy in this vision and uh, when you have opportunity get behind her Pray for her and the team and support these um, events and activities as they come along so that we can see this dream um, unfold into reality and uh, see a lot of families helped around our community. Thanks, Dorothy. Thank Pleasure. you. Well, today we're going to continue in our series um, in 2 Timothy. And just to remind us of what's taken place so far, this is uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, to a young Christian leader in Ephesus called Timothy, and um, Paul's actually in prison in Rome. 
He's been locked up for a while and he's writing to Timothy and um, the reason for the letter in part is because he wants to encourage this young man who's, um, he's been mentoring for some time. And uh, the background is that the church is in a bit of trouble um, that Timothy's leading. There's disagreement and uh, disorder and there's some challenges with some leaders who are opposing um, Paul and opposing Timothy and opposing the um, true message of the good news of Jesus and it's become quite difficult. In fact, one of the leaders may have contributed in part to Paul being locked up in prison. Now, Paul writes in his letter encouraging Timothy. He expresses how he um, misses Timothy and how he um, loves Timothy's sincere faith. And he talks to Timothy about spiritual gifts. And we learned um, in one of our previous uh, sessions in this Made for More series that spiritual gifts are given at the time when a person becomes a Christian and every Christian gets at least one spiritual gift from God. And um, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, fan into flame that spiritual gift that you've been given. But Paul goes further than just talking about the spiritual gifts. He's actually, he understands that in um, the use of spiritual gifts, a Christian's character comes into play. And we learnt last week about the fact that Timothy um, had a bit of a character flaw. He was a little bit on the timid side. And who wouldn't be as a young leader when you've got um, intimidating older leaders around you that are disagreeing and opposing you? But Paul sees this as something that needs to be worked on. And he writes to Timothy about this and encourages him. And he actually explains that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, it brings power and it brings love and it brings self-discipline, not timidity. And uh, he encourages Timothy in that way. We pick up this um, passage in 2 Timothy, and we'll just get it up on the screen for you, um, in verses 8 to 12. But I'd like to remind us um, about the whole um, section. So we're just going to read um, together, just from the, the whole section of uh, up to where we are now. So at the beginning to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Remember that, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. It's a central theme to this book. To dear Timothy, my son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. And now we come to this section from 8 to 12, which uh, we're going to be focusing on today. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light 
through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Well, if you're anything like me, you read those verses 8 to 12, I thought, wow, I got the tough end of this preaching series. There is so much packed into those four verses, so many big ideas. How are we going to deal with this? So what we're going to do is take these four verses and just look at little pieces of them a bit at a time and work our way through and see if we can understand some of these amazing big ideas that Paul's communicating in these four verses and I encourage you after today's message read these over several times and pray about them I think God will speak to your heart in quite profound ways as he has to mine so in verse 8 at the beginning of verse 8 it says so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me his prisoner I thought about this as I was reading it and thought wow that's pretty tough mentorship that word ashamed is a pretty strong word isn't it ashamed of the good news about jesus ashamed of me paul the prisoner what's going on that paul would want to write like that it's tough mentorship well things weren't working out very well in the church that timothy was leading there was a lot of opposition and almost certainly he was pretty discouraged at times. Paul was in jail as a direct consequence of this good news about Jesus and its implications for the society that he was in and he'd been locked up so things weren't looking too good as far as outcomes are concerned, as far as the good news of Jesus is concerned. Is Timothy at risk of losing his confidence? The message about Jesus that Paul had devoted himself to doesn't look like it's ending too well for Paul and it's not looking too good for Timothy either. I guess if you and I, you and I were in those circumstances, we'd probably have a few doubts, wouldn't we? Maybe our confidence would be a little bit unsettled. Could Timothy even be a bit embarrassed or maybe a bit ashamed of the good news about Jesus? Have you ever had doubts held back a little bit when Jesus comes up in a conversation at work? Maybe avoided extending an invitation just in case you looked a little bit silly? This idea of being ashamed of Jesus or of the gospel news about him is used by Paul in several other places. It's a penetrating word, ashamed, and it has some, some sort of deeply unpleasant implications, doesn't it? Let's take a little look at um, some definitions um, and there'll be a slide up here to help us. Um, looking at the idea of being embarrassed, in fact, um, in the message translation of the scriptures, um, the word embarrassed is used, but in many other translations, the word ashamed is used. Embarrassed is a reaction caused by fear of being judged by other people as wrong or as a stupid person. It's more externally focused and about what other, people's, other people think of you. In contrast, ashamed is feeling humiliated or guilty 
because either your own or someone else's behaviour has been degrading or maybe disgraceful or maybe seriously wrong in some fashion. It's more introspective and it's how you feel on the inside about yourself or about somebody else. Let me give you a couple of examples. I had an elderly lady who comes to visit me at the clinic from time to time and she's completely blind. She loves bright red lipstick and I'm talking luminous bright red lipstick. Well, one particular morning she came in to the clinic and immediately I was distracted. Obviously she'd been in a hurry and the lipstick application had not gone well. In fact, her mouth was on an extreme angle of about 45 degrees painted on her face with lipstick. I felt like I had to turn my head on the side to be able to talk to her appropriately. We got through the consultation okay, but as I showed her out into the passageway and got her in the right direction heading up towards reception, I dashed back into my room, picked up my phone, rang one of my nurses and said, look, this poor lady is going to be embarrassed. I know she's going out to some social functions later on after this visit. Can you grab her on the way up the passage, take her into the bathroom and straighten up her face for her? And uh, the nurse did that and um, she had a better day, I hope, as a consequence of that little intervention. <laughs> There's an example of embarrassment. My wife and I were in Austria many years ago and um, we'd had a bit of a car accident and uh, none of us were hurt or anything, but the car was badly hurt. And um, we'd gone without a bit of food during the day, that's never a good thing for me. And um, we went out to an Austrian restaurant that evening where um, the only language spoken in the restaurant was German. Now, my wife, Anne, speaks a little bit of German and um, we were able to sit down and we could make out from the menu that um, it's a small country town and nobody spoke English. We could make out from the menu that um, uh, there was soup and bread available and then there were a range of main courses. So being pretty hungry, we just ordered the soup and bread straight up and then decided to look down the menu and consider what main course we would have. In my usual fashion, after studying the menu carefully, I found that there was a platter for two of Austrian delicacies available. So, thinking we're in Austria, why not, you know, um, I talked Anne into it and we ordered the platter for two. What I didn't understand about Austrian cooking is it comes in vast quantities. The platter arrived after we'd already eaten a large bowl of soup and a large bread roll and this massive pile of food was put down in the middle of the table, about that high, about this big. And um, so we sort of looked at each other and thought, well, okay, and we started eating, but there was just no way we could eat all this food. We probably got through about, you know, a quarter or a third of it and we were done. Anyway, the waitress uh, obviously was watching to see how much we would eat and she walked over, stood there with her hands on her hips when it was clear that we had finished looked directly at me, shook her head like this <laughs> and went shada, shada, picked up the tray and walked off. That was the end of our meal. I turned to Anne and I said, what did she say? And Anne looked at me like this and said, shame, shame. <laughs> there is a difference between embarrassment and shame. You see, there's another slide to help us with this. Someone may actually speak up occasionally for a person who's done something embarrassing, kind of intervene on their behalf and help them out, reduce the tension, reduce the embarrassment slightly. 
But, you know, virtually nobody speaks up for someone who's done something shameful. Have you ever thought about that? Nobody speaks up for anybody who's done something shameful except Jesus. In verse 8, Paul continues with this passage after saying, you know, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as a prisoner. He goes on in the second part of verse 8 to say, rather join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Ever been a bit put out when someone asks you to help them? Ever decided not to do something helpful because it wasn't convenient? I have. Not proud to say this, but if you ever hurried by someone who might have been in need just in case you got asked to stop and assist? Yeah, I have. Not proud of it, but I have. Ever been mildly inconvenienced for the cause of Jesus? Ever suffered for Jesus? Ever actually accepted an invitation to suffer for Jesus? Has Paul gone gone completely bonkers here? Does he really expect Timothy to accept the invitation to suffer? How can Paul even ask such a thing? Well, he goes on in verse 9 to say this. He has saved us. Jesus, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us before the beginning of time. You know, Paul understands that there is something deeply wrong in us and there's no use pretending because we can't control it. It's called sin and it's the opposite of holy. It's any kind of disobedience to God. And because we cannot control it, it is the cause of shame and being ashamed. No one speaks up for someone who's done something shameful except Jesus. In the second part of verse 9, it goes on, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. We cannot buy our way out of this sin problem. We can't work our way out of this sin problem. We cannot fix it ourselves. It's out of our control. This idea that God came up with to help us was not an afterthought. He has a purpose in mind for each of us and this was planned from the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, out of his love, Christians call this salvation rescue plan grace, unmerited favour from God. In verse 10, Paul goes on and says, but it is now being revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How could a just and holy God allow sin-damaged people like me to be in his presence for eternity? How could sin-damaged people like me live holy lives? Well, it was a God idea, the biggest, most amazing plan ever. 
God decided to pay the price of all the sin in all the people in the whole world for all time by paying it himself through Jesus because he knew we couldn't do it. This substitution where God pays the full price for sin of people occurs in no other religion, belief system or faith. It is the essence of the salvation plan made before the beginning of time. It's why belief in Jesus is the only way people can be saved and it's why all other religions and faiths are false. God substituted Jesus instead of us and put the world's sin on him and punished him, the perfect son, instead of us through death on a cross. This was the price for making us perfectly acceptable in God's eyes by removing our sin and replacing it with the rightness of Jesus. Then Jesus rose again from the dead, proving he was God and Saviour and able to conquer death, even death as a consequence of the sin of the entire world, including Timothy's, Paul's and yours and mine. Jesus Christ brought us life and immortality. This is available to all people and accessing it is not on the basis of doing or being good, but on the basis of simply believing in Jesus. No more death and hell for people who believe in Jesus. In verse 11, Paul goes on and says, and the gospel, the good news about this amazing rescue plan of Jesus That gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Making this good news known was Paul's entire career. In verse 12, he says, that's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So how do you live a holy life? What stops people rushing to grab hold of this good news? Well, essentially, it boils down to pride and control and pretending to be in control. We have to stop pretending and admit that the root of our shame is sin and we can't control it. We cannot control our lives or our destiny on our own. Admitting we're out of control, asking God to forgive us because of what Jesus has done for us, exchanging our sin for his rightness, accepting Jesus as our Lord, as Lord of our lives and not trying to retain the Lordship ourselves and keep the control ourselves. This is the way we enter eternal life and start to enjoy the purpose God planned for us. Then holy living comes as a response to all the love he's shown us. It's a response of love to a good, good father who's done everything to rescue us. When we believe in Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit who helps us with power, love and self-discipline. And the process starts of growing daily to be more like Jesus, more holy, more honouring of the Father who loves us and Jesus who saved us. Less and less inclined to sin and constantly relying on his forgiveness for all past and future sin. Paul's conclusion is this, in essence, Yes, suffering's painful, but who cares about suffering? It's temporary and it's worth it for making this good news about Jesus known to everybody. I am convinced, he says, come and join me. Come and join me in the suffering. 
You see, the gospel is no cause for shame. The gospel is the cure for shame. We're going to remember Jesus now in communion. And this is a celebration that Christians have done down through the ages since Jesus asked us to. And uh, if you're not in a place where you can um, take communion today, that's okay. Just um, pass that along. But for people who love Jesus, people who have accepted his lordship in their lives, people who are aware of their sinfulness and have asked for forgiveness from God, this is for you to help remember this precious Jesus who paid everything to rescue us. We're going to remember this communion just by taking a little bit of biscuit that represents um, bread, the bread of life, his body broken for us on the cross. And we're going to take a little bit of juice that represents his blood willingly shed for us, willingly shed for us on the cross. And as you eat this bread and drink this juice, remember Jesus. In a little while, the band are going to start playing a wonderful song. It's a song of commitment. And if the Holy Spirit's been tapping you on the shoulder during this message and you've never accepted Jesus before as your saviour, there's an opportunity for you in this next song to make a declaration that you believe in Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness during this communion time and he will forgive you. He'll come into your life and start a whole new rescue plan for you that draws you back into relationship with God the Father. Don't miss the opportunity. If you've been drifting in your Christian life and this idea of getting serious about throwing yourself into a career of making the gospel known, throwing yourself in your life into serving God wholeheartedly and not holding back at all, if you're willing to accept Paul's invitation to suffer for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, maybe you'd make that declaration today as well and ask Jesus to lead you to that place where you can implement the spiritual gift in your life with a clear conscience, totally sold out and committed to honouring him in all that you do and being a witness. So let's take communion together and then share together with the band in this song. Thank you.